I wanted to start by saying, well, what will the new year bring us in 2015? One thing's for certain, it's going to bring us a new book of the Bible to study, because we are coming to the end of the book of Titus. So if you have some thoughts on what book I need to preach next, you need to start lobbying your position, right? Start, you know, send me some, some hints, uh, or just come up and tell me. That works too. Um, if there, there's a book, you know, uh, just sharing personally, I thought First John was a, a book that I, I wanted to preach through, and then we ended up studying it, or we're studying it in care groups, so I don't know that that would necessarily be a fit. And then, um, what else did I think of? I think we, uh, Romans and First Thessalonians, those are uh, two, I think, front runners, so just giving you a little idea just to whet your appetite. Although, it, we realized, and I was talking to the elders, that if we do start Romans, we're going to be in there for a while. So, um, maybe First Thessalonians, because it's a little bit shorter about one-third shorter that uh, it might be more realistic for us to tackle that book. But we'll see what the Lord has for us. Uh, certainly you can um, share any thoughts that you have. Maybe there's a book that you really would um, hope that we would study, and we'd, I'd love to hear that feedback. Well, this is a special Sunday because it is our first Sunday, uh, the first of 2015, and oftentimes as a pastor, you're trying to come up with a specific passage that fits the holidays, and I'll share this with you. God has been exceedingly gracious to us because through our journey of Titus, when we came to the Christmas season, he allowed us to uh, land right on Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, which ended up serving us so well as we got to look at um, that, that text, and it prepared our hearts for the celebration of, of the Savior. And our passage for today, you're going to see, is more than appropriate to prepare our hearts for a new year in Christ. And I'm excited to preach it, and I, I think it's appropriate that we just take a moment. I want to pray and just ask that the Lord would uh, bless the pulpit, bless the preaching ministry of 2015, that he would give us great clarity too, just as it relates to the book that we'll study next, and as well as our, our, our final couple Sundays in Titus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge you because you give us clarity and you give us direction. Your word is uh, the source which does so. And we want to ask that you would just allow us to uh, navigate clearly the direction that you would have. What book of the Bible would you have for us to study after Titus? And there are so many wonderful options for us as a church family. I pray that we, we could unite our hearts and pray that you would direct me, direct the elders to the book that is going to best serve the needs of our church. We rejoice in all that you've taught us through the book of Titus and what a blessing it has been and continues to be. We ask that as we focus on uh, the two verses that you have for us today that you would Allow us to understand them with greater clarity and that you would allow these final uh, few weeks in the book to, to be blessed as we really um, take uh, to heart the, the things that you want us to take away and to know and understand so that they impact our walks in 2015 and beyond. And so, Lord, we don't know what this year is going to bring, and yet we know that you already know, because you are Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, you know uh, what's in store for us, and we just pray that you would allow us to prosper this year spiritually, that you would uh, continue to grow us, and whether that's in peaks or in valleys, we trust you in everything, and even the trials that you bring into our lives that will sanctify us. And allow us to depend more upon you and to learn valuable lessons. We, we pray for them. We pray that they'll be used effectively for our church family. Uh, we ask that you would also to allow us to uh, be encouraged by the praises that will take place as well. The continued progress in our spiritual growth, in care groups, in the women's ministries and children's ministries and youth ministry, all the wonderful discipleship ministries of our church that you would continue to bless us as a church family and allow us to grow according to your will. Allow us to 
uh, cling to Christ and continue to become more like him. We thank you for this time to uh, study this morning, and we look forward to seeing how you answer. It's in Christ's name that we pray all this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 and follow along as I read verses 3 through 9, keeping in mind that we're going to limit our study today to verses 8 and 9, which we've yet to cover. So we'll begin reading in verse 3 of chapter 3 and reading from the NAS. This is what it has for us. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Well, our study today and our text is going to provide two practical actions for God's shepherds and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church. The Apostle Paul was writing this epistle to Titus, who was serving as a shepherd to the various churches on the island of Crete. And this was the launch of the church age, which was relatively still in its early stages as this letter was written. So the instructions that the Holy Spirit led Paul to record were purposed and practical, not just for church leadership, but for the entire church. And I think it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that this was a single letter written And we have the luxury today of holding that letter where the churches that received them, they they got that letter and it would be read and they would have to remember what it's read. Why? Because they didn't have the luxury of holding it. Yet we do. It's such a blessing. And this is a special letter filled with instruction for the church. And so as we begin a new year in Christ, I'm convinced that our focus on these Simple actions can have a profound impact, have profound implications in our lives as believers. The outline's in your notes, and the first practical action is to trust the gospel in all of God's word in 2015. Now, we trust it all the time, but considering the reality that we're starting a new year, I think it's appropriate, uh, considering the, the, the reality that we're just starting out with 2015, 15, that we could ask the question, how do you expect God's word to impact you in 2015? Will God's word be the primary source of direction for your life in 2015? We know that it's reliable, but how do you plan to rely upon it? God's will is that his word would promote measurable spiritual growth in our understanding of who he is, and that it would allow our relationship with him to grow stronger. That it would also provide greater spiritual depth in our relationships to others in our lives, in our care group, in our marriages and families, in our relationships with Christian friends. The second practical action is to avoid wrangling over words. And the context of our letter really assists Our understanding as Titus and the churches dealt with the effects of the false teaching that was taking place. And as a result, there was a growing confusion and disunity in the church. And this is one of the primary reasons why Paul initiated this letter. False teaching was promoting disunity in the church. And it was taking place by way of foolish controversies, 
genealogies, strife, and disputes about the law of Moses. And as a result, Paul commanded Titus and the churches to avoid such things so that the church's testimony would be unified. And we'll look more closely at these when we get a chance and and get to verse 9. Again, our focus will be two practical uh, actions for God's shepherds and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church. And action number one is to trust the gospel and all of God's word. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Our verse begins with the the saying, this is a trustworthy statement. Naturally, this leads us to ask the question, which statement? Is it talking about that which was just stated, or is it talking about that which is about to be stated? When you look in your English Bibles, it's kind of hard to see. But in the Greek, this is pointing backward to the single statement that Paul just shared in verses 4 through 7, which you may recall I shared in our English Bibles, verses 4 through 7 is one Greek sentence, one extended Greek sentence, massive sentence. Paul's spiritual gift of writing these incredibly long sentences. And this statement we studied in full the last time I had a chance to preach, and we learned that they provide the ultimate remedy really to um, our our depraved and desperate condition spelled out for us in verse 3. And when we put this Greek statement under the microscope, it revealed three aspects of God's remedy for our situation. It revealed his motive, his means, and his mission. It revealed his motive when it reflects that God extended kindness. It's his philanthropy to mankind. It revealed his love. It revealed his, appeal, his appearing in verse 4. And then verses 5 and 6 reveal God's means for us, describing how he saved us. It was through his action. He stepped out of heaven. Our Savior came for us. And it wasn't based on anything we did or didn't do. It wasn't based on any righteousness that we have in our own merit. But it was based on mercy, his mercy, through regeneration, through renewal, through Jesus Christ. And then this also allows us to gain some insight and provided insight into God's mission for us. As believers, we're not only heirs of eternal life, but our extended mission now includes serving God's purposes for all eternity. So what might the Apostle Paul possibly say after such a powerful gospel declaration? He starts by saying, this is a trustworthy statement. The word trustworthy can be translated faithful. Or reliable. Literally, it is saying, faithful the word. And it serves as an affirmation of the truthfulness of the statement that was just shared. And this is why our first subpoint says to be reliable in your notes. You and I can trust the gospel and all of God's word to be reliable because God himself affirms that they're reliable throughout the scriptures. We know they're reliable because it's the truth. I love Psalm 119, I believe it's verse 160, that says the sum or the entirety of God's word is truth. Lord Jesus Christ, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Because the gospel and all of God's word is reliable and trustworthy, this also allows it to be spoken with confidence. This is letter B under our first point. Look at the middle of verse 8 as it continues. This is a trustworthy statement. And then Paul says this to Titus. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Someone wisely once said, God, when God speaks, he doesn't stutter. He used men of great conviction to deliver his word to us. 
And here we not only gain a sense of Paul's conviction about the gospel, but we, we sense his conviction for all the instructions that he's writing when he says these things. And Paul did this at the end of chapter 2, and he's about to do it at the end here of, or the middle of chapter 3 as well, referring to all the instruction that he has shared up to the point when he says these things. It's, it's referring to all of the instruction given in chapter 3. And many commentators believe it's a reference to all the instruction that Paul has written in his previous two letters. And we've got to keep in mind, it's important to keep in mind that this is a short letter. And one of the dangers of expository preaching is sometimes that we can slow down so much and we're so focused on the trees that we lose sight of how those trees are grafted into the forest. It's important that we see the connection to both the gospel and to all the instructions of God's word given throughout the letter. Both are vital for spiritual growth and unity in the church. Well, the Apostle Paul understood this, and this is why he instructed Titus to keep speaking the things that are fitting for sound doctrine in Titus 2.1. A summary statement, he said, speak consistently. And now, here in Titus 3.8, Paul says to Titus, speak confidently. Your translation might also say to insist, which again is Paul bringing the weight of his convictions about trusting the gospel and all of God's word. And all of this is tied together. And now verse 8 gives us the purpose, which functions as our third sub-point under point number one. The first action for God's shepherd and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church is to trust the gospel and all of God's word. We trust them to be reliable. We trust them to be spoken with confidence. And now we see the reason why. Look at how verse 8 finishes. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. One commentator shared, clearly there is a connection between the conviction of the preacher and his confidence in the pulpit, but there is also a connection with both the conviction of the preacher and his confidence in the pulpit and the desired change in God's people. And Paul wanted Titus the shepherd to see this. And God would have... Uh, Pastor John and the elders of the church, the shepherds, to see this as well. The continuous theme of good works is featured yet again. And the Christian faith has feet. It has feet. It's an active faith. It is actually the title of today's message. Put, put what? Feet on your faith. By feet I mean our faith calls us to action. Our faith act, actively runs from sins that we previously committed in our lives. We, we, we run from those things in repentance. That's what faith does. And then faith has us run towards, as we spiritually are grown, as we learn and gain our understanding about God's word and the direction and the things that he has for us in our lives, it runs us towards good deeds that he's prepared in advance that we walk in. Paul wanted Titus to challenge Cretan believers, or as our verse shares, those who have believed God to run from the deceptive, gluttonous, and lying culture that they once contributed to. And now the goal of his preaching would be to challenge believers to be careful to engage in good deeds. And the verb translated, will be careful, is used only here in the New Testament. And it has this sense of think of, be intent upon, or be careful or concerned about. And the present tense points to this as an abiding way of life. Believers should be continually thinking of how to do good deeds. You know, I think sometimes it's easy for our perception of good deeds to be skewed up. I really do. Because we, we have it so ingrained uh, in our, our justification, so ingrained in the gospel, right? That no one's saved by good deeds, right? So there's this perception. And we live in a world that's surrounded with people. When you ask them, you know, if, if they're going to go to heaven, what do they usually say? What do they say? 
yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, I do, I do some good things, right? So I think that, it, it, I know for me, maybe, maybe it's not true for you, but I, I think for a lot of us, we, we have this negative perception of good deeds, and as we should as, when it comes to our justification. But when it comes to our sanctification, good deeds are an encouraging thing. That's the evidence of God at work. As we're growing spiritually, there's going to be a manifestation of good deeds and actions in our lives. It's going to be an outflow of our faith. Our faith is going to have feet. And certainly starting a new year in Christ is an appropriate time for us all to reflect on how God might use us in a greater capacity in 2015. What good works might he have you think of or to be intent upon? If you need some help, I want to provide some. Because what you see back here on these banners, the ministry pillars are intended to put feet on our faith. This is the philosophy of ministry of our church. And so when we look at these banners and we see one as we do here right behind the guitar, progressing in evangelism and discipleship, that pillar is intended to put feet on our faith. God has called each of us to make disciples. And certainly our care groups provide a ministry outlet for us to grow spiritually in discipleship relationships. And some in our church aren't in a care group. And so perhaps maybe a good work that God might have for you to consider is for you to join a care group this year to make an investment in the lives of other people and for other people to make an investment in your lives. If you're in a care group, maybe a good work that God's prepared is that he's going to have you draw closer to somebody who's kind of out on the the, the peripheral. They're, they're, they come to care groups sometimes, but... They're not there a lot of times. And they're, they're on the fringe. And they can go maybe a couple weeks. And sometimes we don't see them. Maybe God's going to use you to reach out to that person. To draw close to them. So that you can help them. Or maybe they'll, they'll help you grow in an area of weakness as you work together. Evangelism and outreach are also important components that open up the door for many good works. Maybe this will be the year that you go on the Czech missions trip. We made that announcement, did we? Did we make it? Yeah. Did we make an announcement about Czech missions? It's coming up. We're going to be meeting, uh, so I'll plant that seed in your thinking right now. And um, the, the elders have graciously um, allowed me to go on the trip uh, this summer which I've talked to Marcus about, and I'm excited to go see English camp and to see the ministry there. So thank you, elders, for allowing me to go, and I look forward to that. But maybe the Lord's going to use that. Maybe you've never been on a missions trip. Maybe that's the good work that God has you, he wants you to think about, to dwell upon. I'm telling you, everybody who's gone on a missions trip, it changes you. It changes your perspective of your faith, and it broadens your view of the church, and it's amazing what God does. It's amazing the lessons that he teaches you in service. Not just of people overseas, but service of the team, service and preparation, working together as a unit. It's amazing. Maybe the Lord would have you become more active in our Saturday evangelism efforts and to make and join the concerted effort for us to reach out and to be more effective as evangelists right here in our area. Another pillar is praying to God with fervency. I think I'm favoring these two pillars over here on this side. Perhaps the Lord would have you make a commitment to team up with our prayer ministry and to be, to be here this year faithfully at 8.45 a.m. I know it's early, but it's, it's such a blessing to have an opportunity to pray for the needs of our church we need those prayers. I need those prayers. How might the Lord use you to pray more fervently for the ministries of our church during the week? How might the Lord use your prayers to support the mission work taking place in Czech Republic? Gina and Julia on the missions field and all the things that are taking place 
in that ministry. All these are good works for consideration, and so much has been accomplished through our corporate prayers on top Sundays. It's been a blessing just to see the Lord's faithfulness, but we still have great prayer needs for the ministries of our church. Praising God with passion. Another opportunity, another pillar. And many already serve on the audio, uh, video, and the, the worship team already. But maybe you're someone, the Lord's burdening your heart, and he would have you consider joining one of these terms to serve him this year. This will take place as you spend more time thinking about how to take action. And today's passage provides practical actions for God's shepherds and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church. The first action is to trust the gospel in all of God's word. We trust the gospel and God's word to be reliable, to be spoken with confidence, and to promote spiritual growth and profitable works. The second practical action for God's shepherds and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church is to avoid wrangling over words. Look at verse 9. It says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul now changes directions, and he does so by using the common conjunction, but to address how Titus and believers are to deal with the influences of factious false teaching. If there's one thing that's going to hinder and poses a great threat to the, the life, the vitality, and the ministry of the church and to unity, it is factious false teaching. And as a result, there are certain things to avoid. The Greek present tense here again demands this action to be continual. So it could be translated, make it your ongoing testimony to avoid, if you're a Bible writer. It's an ongoing testimony to avoid. And Paul used the same form to command Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.16, to avoid worldly and empty chatter. And here Paul shares four dangers that Titus is instructed to have nothing to do with, which serve each of them serve as subpoints under letter A. These dangers also give us some idea of the Jewish opposition that they were facing uh, at, the, at the time that opposed Titus and the Cretan believers. And we should read this with a connection to chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, which seems like many moons ago that we studied that passage that dealt with false teaching. But Paul's earlier treatment of the false teachers and their teaching that face Titus and believers should be, serves as a backdrop for these, these things which we're about to talk about. The first danger is foolish controversies. Controversies can also be translated speculations or investigations. And theological clarification and investigation are necessary for there to be spiritual growth and unity in the church. They can, however, at some point become profitless and counterproductive. They may become foolish. And this, this Greek word for foolish is moros in the Greek. It's from the, the word that we get our English word moron, moronic. Not all controversy is foolish. Some issues are critical and have to be discussed. But Paul's point is to avoid stupid arguments and useless quarrels. And many of the Jewish rabbis of Paul's day they would just sit around and they would make up stuff to argue about. They would spend hours talking about what could or couldn't be done on the Sabbath. They would spend hours talking about which foods were kosher and which foods weren't. It's an important lesson for us to be discerning about controversial topics. And major theological discussions can and should take place in a way that honors God and his word. Yet sadly, many of the foolish controversies that are faced in the church, they have nothing to do with any spiritual ramifications. They don't. And Paul says we need to avoid such matters. Really, in the end, controversy is an opportunity to put Christ on display in your life by clinging to Humility 
and discernment so that you can respond appropriately. And Paul's point here is that both shepherds and sheep may need to put feet on their faith by avoiding the danger of such foolish controversies. The second danger that's listed in verse 9 that we're to avoid is genealogies. And this word is used elsewhere only in 1 Timothy 1.4 where Paul warned Timothy to avoid endless genealogies. And this points again to the Jewish nature of the opposition both in Ephesus and in Crete. The Jewish people were meticulous about their genealogies. And rightfully so because a lot had to do with land ownership okay, and property. So uh, you know, that's not to be dismissed. But what happened is it wasn't just a way to document family lines. This led to gene- genealogies becoming a defining element of whether a person was in or outside of the faith instead of the gospel. Some Jewish rabbis would even spend time building up imaginary genealogies for the people of the Old Testament and then arguing about them. How's that? We're just going to make up genealogies and then argue about them. I'm just talk about a waste of time. And this actually could be a reference to the myths that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 14. Myths, of course, being things that were made up. And all this leads to the third danger listed in verse 9. Strife. This Greek word describes contention and wrangling between people. And such strife arises, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 4, out of controversial questions. And as we shared under our first subpoint, there are going to be things that come up that there's just going to be no definite answers for. And Paul is saying such things need to be avoided so that strife does not take place. Proverbs 17, 14 says... The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. What's that, What's that saying? The smallest break in a dam can release an uncontrollable flood. And those of us, especially those of us who have been married for, for a while and had conversations, as Victoria and I, we look at each other and smile. Sometimes there are things that were just... Better off just letting them go. Shelfing those things practically. And here, that's the point that Paul would have Titus and the people on the island of Crete uh, see. And the Apostle Paul offered this perspective to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.14 when he wrote, Solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. And just like a flood that's going to come in and destroy everything in the path here in Titus 3.9, Paul says to Titus and to the church, avoid the danger of strife. And that's why we put feet on our faith. Sometimes it's going to involve walking away from such dangers. And Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 3.3 and Galatians 5.20 that strife is characteristic of of the sinful nature, not the spirit-filled life. If the goal of God's shepherds and sheep is to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church, then we must avoid this hazard at all costs. Well, there's a fourth and final danger mentioned in verse 9 that is to be avoided, and it's disputes about the law. And here, the law is referring to the Mosaic law. And the reason is because so many of the early Christian converts were Jews, it was common for disputes to break out about the Mosaic Law. And we see this in a number of New Testament books, especially in Galatians, when they were the Judaizers were imposing that it, it was necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised in the church. And we also see in the book of Acts, the Council of Jerusalem was called for the specific purpose, and this is in Acts chapter 15, dealing with the Judaizers, including one of the sects of the Pharisees who had believed and who said it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And ironically, you know who straightened them out? Peter. 
Peter ended up telling them and straightening them out. But if you'll remember, those of us familiar with the book of Galatians in Galatians chapter 2, who was it that had to straighten Peter out? It was Paul, right? Peter was this guy who was sliding over to the influence of the Judaizers. And Paul says in Galatians 2 that he had to confront him to his face. And I share this as an example for us all. Sometimes we need to be straightened out. Sometimes there's things that we're off on and we need to be straightened out so we can be more effective disciple makers. And Peter ends his comments with the question, now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, the Jews, are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus and in the same way as the Gentiles are also. And so after Peter responds, then Paul and Barnabas and others, including James, who served as the moderator of the council, uh, James closes the meeting with the following words. He says, It is my judgment that we do not trouble with circumcision and the observance of the Mosaic law those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And John MacArthur writes, For believers who recognize the authority of the apostles and of God's word disputes about the law of Moses and its relations and its relation to Christians were permanently settled at this time. Yeah, I think that if we're honest, we can all be vulnerable to being Judaizers at times. We can be tempted to think that we're being spiritual because we can eloquently speak about theology or or the bible and it's one thing to be speaking about theology but it's quite another to have that theology translate into good deeds or as this sermon title says for it to put feet on our faith people can get hung up on the the tiniest little letters of the law and i wanted to share this story with you. The former governor of Kentucky, John Y. Brown, once suffered a heart attack while he was in Florida. He drove himself to the hospital and told the nurse at the station, I think I'm having a heart attack. Sir, your car is illegally parked, she barked. You have to move it. He said, I'm really having chest pains. She said, before you check in, you must move your car. He said, ma'am, I'm John Y. Brown, the former governor of Kentucky, and I think I'm having a heart attack. Sir, she said, move your car, and then we'll talk to you. He went out, moved his car, and then finally was able to get checked in to be taken care of for this heart attack. It can become so easy for us to focus on legalities that we, we miss out on the task of caring for people. One pastor sh- shared this, we have to constantly beware of this danger in the church. Some controversies in Christian circles have no solution. They take up endless hours in unproductive effort. We would be better off just not broaching the subject if it is going to create such controversy. People spend hours debating premillennial and amillennial views of the return of Jesus. Sunday school classes spend weeks analyzing whether the world was created in six 24-hour days or a long span of time in six different time segments. Churches can get stymied by whether the place they meet in should be called the auditorium or the sanctuary. So that was such a good word. Well, I wanted to provide some, uh, a practical outlet uh, for some application and you'll notice our second sub-point in your outline found under our, our second point. I wanted to provide some directives for application. And though most of us aren't going to be caught up in any disputes about our, Jew, our Jewish genealogies, right? Or making them up anytime soon. Like, Although I do, there's part of me that wishes that there was a little bit of Jewish bloodline. I, I just think when, I, when I, you read Zephaniah and it talks about the, you know, 10 Gentiles clinging to the cloak of a Jew to go seek favor from the Lord when the, when the Lord's sitting and ruling on the Davidic throne. I just, 
it's going to be amazing what happens with Israel. But um, I, I think that um, we're not going to face that danger. But the other dangers still pose, uh, I think, a realistic threat. How can we prevent them from happening to us? A first grade boy wrote the following essay about straight pins. Pins are wonderful. They save thousands of lives every year. His teacher said, how do pins save thousands of lives? He said, by not swallowing them. (laughs) Prevention is certainly a great place to start when it comes to facing dangers. And here are five ways to avoid these dangers. And these should be listed in your bulletin, are they? Okay, great, you got them. Number one, change the subject. When you feel a discussion is moving towards controversy, make a turn in the conversation and skillfully try to navigate your way out of it. Change the subject. Number two, don't bring it up. If you know it's a volatile subject, don't mention it. If you know somebody, and this can happen, um, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget the, so back at Master Seminary, I was at Grace Community Church, and there was, after a Sunday evening service, there was um, these group of guys talking, and I was friends with um, one of the guys, and we were more kind of on the the peripheral side of this conversation, but they were talking about the doctrine of election. And it was apparent that one guy who was there didn't, who really struggled to understand the doctrine. And I still, and they were so forceful and they were so direct with him that I could just see this guy's just this wall building up. And they were just like, you just need to keep coming back and you just need to keep hearing you know, MacArthur teach this, and and da 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 da, and this guy was just like, honestly, it, it seemed like it was, it was so unprofitable that I don't even know if that guy was ever going to come back. It seemed, I, and I, 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 for some reason, remember that in my mind, and I think about some of the situations where we can know people who have such sensitivities that there, there might be times where we don't bring up certain subjects that when, when there's so much that we can focus on, there's so much that can bring us together, we can unify. It doesn't mean that you can't have the conversation. It, again, this is a call for discernment to make sure that, if there's, that you're aware of somebody having a sensitivity in our particular area that it might be best not to bring it up to them. Number three is this, walk away. Sometimes... Because someone is forcing the issue, you don't have an option. So you can walk away from the subject that's being talked about, or it might even involve walking away from the person if necessary, so that you don't engage and allow personal pride to entangle you. Number four, this is an effective strategy. Be lighthearted. Use, uh, use a sense of humor. It can be used. Proverbs 17.22, Solomon says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. And sometimes that can help release some of the tension. And it also conveys, and again, you're not compromising your convictions about something, but it just allows um, the, the guard to come down a little bit so that a situation doesn't escalate into a volatile one. One preacher, when asked to asked his view on the second coming of Christ, he said, I don't know, I'm not on the programming committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. A good sense of humor can diffuse a lot of tense moments. Well, number five, avoid the person altogether. You may meet someone who is so primed for an argument that nothing else works. And Paul suggests here that you reject a divisive person. And that's actually what we're going to study next week. In verse 10, we're going to study verses 10 and 11 on how to handle divisive people in a way that honors the Lord. Where our faith is to have feet, and the book of Titus reminds us throughout that good work should flow out of an active faith. And our passage today features the reality of providing two practical actions for God's shepherds and sheep to promote spiritual growth and unity in the church. The first action is to trust the gospel and all of God's word, and this will promote spiritual growth in our lives that will inevitably yield fruit. The second action is to avoid wrangling over words, and our first sub-point just featured four dangers for us. And our last sub-point 
under point number two allows us to see the disappointments that can result. Look at the end of verse nine. It says this, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Unlike good deeds, which are good and profitable, now we get to these hazards here that were just listed for us in verse 9. And when we get to the end of the verse, it lets us know that they're unprofitable and worthless. When our feet have faith, it means that we're going to run towards that which is good and profitable. And when our feet have faith, it means that we're also going to run away from those things that are not good, that are not profitable. The word profitable or unprofitable is one of two adjectives here at the end of the verse. And it's accompanied by a stative verb in the Greek. It's, just, it's, it's reflecting a, a state of being, a, a, of reality. And it's, it's, it's in, the, in the Greek, it's in the present active, which means that there's an ongoing, constant nature of such things. And this word unprofitable can also be translated useless. And the second adjective can also mean empty, vain, idle, frivolous, waste of time, or just as the NAS and the ESV translate it, worthless. We're all reminded that there are some arguments which cannot be mattered, that cannot be resolved, and it doesn't matter how competent one's debating skills, excuse me, or reason logic might be, they accomplish nothing. And Paul calls them unprofitable and useless. And we've experienced that, haven't that, when you've had an argument with somebody, when things have escalated, and you're just like, that, that was what (laughs) that was worthless that was worthless here we are we got nothing after that that didn't move the ball down the field in any way shape or form and like usc and ucla and their bowl games we want to make sure that we move the ball down the field spiritually with that plug in for both my socal teams all right but there's a reality that, you know, after time's been, been wasted. And really, whether it's a deep, theologi- deep theological conversation or any conversation for that matter, if it's been rehashed dozens of times and you, it, it just keeps getting rehashed and rehashed and rehashed and there's no progress, and yet every other aspect of the Christian life is going undone, That's Paul's point. It's not getting anywhere. In 1917, when the Russian Revolution was rocking the streets of Petrograd, the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church were in a conference just blocks away from the fighting. They were having a heated debate about what color robes the priest should wear. A theologian shared, we can spend lots of time on trivia when there's a revolution going on in the world. Paul told Titus to spend his time on the real issues and to avoid that which is worthless and unprofitable. I trust that God's word's been a blessing to you this morning. And I hope that you'll take some time later today and even this week to consider the reality of putting feet on your faith. What are some things that God would have you run to this year? Maybe it is the missions trip. Maybe it is becoming a part of care group. Maybe it is making, um, starting that Bible study at work that's been talked about as a good idea that's never gotten off the ground that you want to initiate. I mean, the sky's the limit, and I hope that you'll spend some time, too, also just reflecting on our ministry pillars and, and how those can bless you as well. And also, maybe it's this. Maybe there's some things that God wants you to run from. Maybe you're someone that's been running from Christ, a relationship with Christ. Been running your whole life. You've never been all in for the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never completely come to the end of self. And that 2015 is going to be the year that you come to the end of yourself and that you turn from your sin and that you 
trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ to take over your life? What might your faith have you run from? What might your faith have you run to to glorify the Lord so that he can be magnified through the work in your life? Well, as I alluded to moments ago, next Sunday, we're going to be studying the next two verses, which will instruct us on how to deal with divisive people next Sunday. You won't want to miss it. Right? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads after having the opportunity to look directly into the mirror of your word. And Father, we just rejoice that you have brought us to a place, to a church where there are so many opportunities for us to grow spiritually. That there's a true commitment to a high view of you, a true commitment to your word. And that we're also able to walk in unity. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to allow us to cultivate greater unity as a church family. That for relationships that might be strained, even within our church family, one to another, maybe there's just things that we've been offset with somebody that you would use 2015 as an opportunity for us to overcome those differences and those challenges. That you would allow our hearts to draw close to those that we have been distant from. That you would allow us, as Psalm 133, 1 says, behold how sweet and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. That you would continue to allow our church family to taste the fruit of that. I pray that, Father, that you would do that for our large church family. And I also pray that you would do it for the individual families that exist in our church. For the marriages. For the relationships that exist with children, that you would remove obstacles and that you would be magnified as a result and that if there are things that we've clung to that you would have us run from, that we would, through repentance and a desire to honor you with our lives, put those things down to mortify them and to bury them and then they would be distant from us. Father, we give you great praise and thanks for the work that you have done in our hearts through the gospel, through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in us. We pray that it would continue and that you would allow the feet on our faith to become more active in 2015. We praise you. We look forward to what the year brings. We commit it to you and to your hands asking for you to confirm it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.